0: Welcome to New Life Church's weekly message. New Life Church's mission is to lead people into a transforming relationship with Jesus through the gospel. This week, Pastor Steve Benninger brings us the first message of the series, Gospel Driven Church, entitled, Gospel at the Center. You can find the sermon outline for this message at enewlife.com. I like to say that we are a gospel-driven church on a Love Works mission. We're gonna be talking more about that this morning and uh, undergirding our mission is prayer. And I'm really seeing 2016 as a year to draw near to God, aren't you? There's so much at stake in our own lives, in our families, uh, in our community, in our country, in our world. And we, the people of God, need to be praying and asking God for his kingdom to come and his will to be done and prevail here on this, on this earth. And so my prayer is that there will be more new lifers praying more fervently, more often than ever before. And I hope you'll join me in that. Well, I'll be honest, I don't remember much from my high school biology class. Go figure, right? But for some reason, I do remember learning about DNA. I even remember what it stands for, deoxyribonucleic acid. Impressive, huh? Me and my classmates in ninth grade biology learned that every cell in the human body contains chromosomes and those chromosomes contain genes and genes are made up of DNA molecules, that's right. And it's the DNA that contains the genetic blueprint for building a human body. It's kind of like a coded parts list, an instruction manual for living things. And it's unique for each and every person, kind of like your fingerprints. So you are what you are today in large part because of the unique configuration of your DNA. Did you know that? Well, you do now. Hope that helps. Enough biology, right? Well, here's what I believe. I believe that not only do human beings have DNA, but I believe that every church has a sort of DNA as well. And like human DNA, it it also has two strands. One is doctrinal, our doctrinal DNA, and that's what a congregation believes about the Bible and God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and man, sin, salvation, angels, demons, Satan, the end times, all those things comprise our doctrinal DNA. There's also what I call ministry DNA, and that's what a church is committed to in terms of its core values and its mission and vision and strategy and together those two DNA strands interlock and really determine a whole lot about a church, a whole lot about a church. Without a doubt, New Life Church has a DNA, both doctrinal and ministry. Our doctrinal DNA, if you've been a ministry partner around here, you have a copy of it. It's called our Statement of Faith. And it's basically remained unchanged for 30 years since we began this church. A few years ago I was challenged to identify our ministry DNA and, and put words to it so that you could understand it and so that we could replicate that DNA into new congregations that Jesus allows us to have a part in starting. And so we did that and I put the most current version of that on the backside of your study outline this morning so that you could have that in your possession. If you're a person who's here kind of checking out new life, it's important that you know those things about us. And if you're a long time new lifer, I think it's important to be reminded of those things that we hold dear so that we don't drift away from what God has has put in us, what he has implanted in us. Well, here at the outset of a new year, we realize that it's been quite a while, years, since we took some time to explain our church's ministry DNA in this setting here in celebrations. We particularly wanted to hone in on our core values, our core values because everything else on that DNA document flows out of our four core values. Our mission arises out of those values, our our vision emanates from them, our strategy is guided by those beliefs and so we felt it important to take a few weeks here and restate and reinforce our four ministry convictions that we cling to tightly here at New Life Church. Now our graphic designer, Enver, has created a visual to help us out. You've seen this before. I call it the gospel-driven church diagram. And there at the center, you see what? The gospel, that's right. It's in the center in order to represent God's work these last few years of reestablishing the good news of Jesus as the centerpiece of our church and of our church's life. We're going to talk about that more in a minute. Then notice three dimensions of the gospel's influence on us. First, our identity. Our identity, we believe as we progressively take to heart and believe the good news of Christ, that it shapes and molds how we think about ourselves, our identity. And we're going to talk about that next week. And then it also forms our community together. That's how we relate to each other in the body of Christ. The gospel, we believe, has the power to influence how we interact with one another. And there are certain qualities that'll be present in the life of a church whom the gospel is sinking and being implanted. And then mission, our mission in the world. That's what we've been called by our Lord and Savior to do and to be in the world. We believe the good news propels us outward, outside of these walls to love our neighbors and and even yes, love our enemies. Because we've been called to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world, amen? Amen. So we say the gospel also drives our mission. So the gospel shapes everything. For those who believe it, We've been on a gospel adventure together at New Life for several years now, and I wanna talk about that centerpiece this morning. Gospel at the center. So if you'll turn back over to the other side of your notes, you're gonna see the key truth that I wanna get across today. It's like the sermon in in a sentence. Here it is. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ must, must, must remain front and center in the life of the church. One of my mentors years ago taught me that that wise people, people who are wise learn to make some distinctions in life. Wise people see a difference between things they would die for and things they would fight over and things they might argue about and things they just say whatever to. (laughs) It's important to make those distinctions. Wisdom understands that everything doesn't have equal value. So for me, this truth right here in the box, this key truth is something really important that the good news of Christ must remain front and center in the life of the church. Listen, whether the lobby carpet is green or brown or taupe or fluorescent pink, whatever, right? Whether we promote our children here into the next grade level in June or in August, we can talk about that. Whether or not Christians can drink alcohol, You should form a scriptural based conviction on that and live by it, but those are not things to die for and I'm not even sure they're things to fight about, but this, this is the ball game for the church. To me, this is to die for. Keeping the message of Jesus Christ central in the life of the church. So this morning, I wanna present to you six realities about gospel-centeredness and the local church. And so number one, you should know, and and many of you know this, that New Life Church is seeking to become a gospel-driven church. If you're not familiar with that term, what I mean when I say gospel-driven or gospel-centered, I'm talking about a church where, where the leaders and the people are very intentional about keeping the message of Jesus Christ central in the life of the church. Means that we want the gospel more than anything else to be the the shaper of the culture here, the dominant shaper of our church's culture and the driving force behind its teachings, its sermons, its ministries, its outreaches, everything. Seeking to become a gospel-driven church. And the reason we need to be so deliberate and intentional about this is because of number two, churches can become driven by many things, including many good things. So, how many of you have been in church for 10 years or more? Can I see your hands? All right, many, many of you. Then you know that churches can be driven by a lot of different things. Many different interests and concerns are naturally going to compete for center stage, for the spotlight, throughout the life of a church. Various visions and passions and interests, personalities, programs, purposes, traditions, needs can be embraced by a congregation and end up driving that church's agenda. These are not necessarily bad things, many of them are just fine, but we've become convinced that none of them should be allowed to displace Jesus Christ and him crucified from center stage in this church. That is the priority that should transcend all other agendas and that's the passion that should captivate our affections more than anything else. But all this gospel talk begs the question, doesn't it? What is the gospel? What is it? So number three, the gospel is the message of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, you know the word gospel means good news, right? And so the gospel is the good news that was announced to humanity of what God has done through his son Jesus to save humanity from our sins. That is the good news. Notice it's good news and not good advice. It's news to be heard, not instructions to be followed. Certainly the gospel has implications for how we live our lives, yes. But at its core, it's a message to be believed and rejoiced in, not a list of rules to follow. And you need to know that, we'll talk about that more. It is news about a person, Jesus and what that person has done. So let's take a moment and ask, who is Jesus? beginning in February, I wanna let you know that we're gonna be exploring the first 12 chapters of the book of John together as a church. And I've been looking forward to that now for a while. If you wanna know who Jesus was through the eyes of those who knew him, through the eyes of those who hung out with him, then make sure you're here for our series in the book of John. And by the way, that first weekend of that series, February 6th and 7th, we're gonna call Friend Day, and I'm gonna ask you to invite everybody you know to come. The title of the sermon that day is, Was Jesus a Muslim? You've seen the billboards? You've seen the bumper stickers, yes? There's a campaign now uh, trying to promote Islam claiming Christ for themselves. And I'm asking you to invite your coworkers and friends and neighbors. We're gonna talk about who Jesus was and and who the people who knew him believed him to be from John chapter one. That's February 6th and 7th, Friend Day, so be praying about that. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, I'll tell you, he's a lot of things. He is a lot of things. He was the one who came to us from heaven as the fulfillment of many promises. You know, the Old Testament created an expectation that one day God would send a man who would represent heaven to earth, right? Who would put things right again, who would make crooked things straight again, and who would solve mankind's main problem, which is sin. And so Jesus came and he said, I am that one. I am that man. Well, Jesus is a lot of things, but for our purposes today, I wanna give you four R words that describe who Jesus is. Just, I'm hoping you can just remember these four R words, descriptions of Jesus. He's our redeemer, our reconciler, our ruler, and our restorer. And if you keep saying amen, I'm gonna preach better, so. Amen. He's our redeemer, our reconciler, our ruler, our restorer. The gospel is the good news that after centuries and centuries of waiting, A redeemer was sent from heaven to earth, a redeemer who came to purchase out of slavery a special people for himself, amen? To be his family, God's always wanted a family. And Jesus came to do what no one else could do, reconcile those chosen ones to God. Turn enemies of God into friends of God and then reigning over them as their king. He's a ruler, amen? And ultimately restoring all of his creation into a home, a suitable home for he and his family to dwell in forever. He is redeemer, reconciler, ruler, restorer. The Bible tells us that he was none other than God's own son. God's only begotten son who humbly took on human flesh. And we just celebrated that at Christmas, the incarnation of Christ. But he grew up. He lived a beautiful and perfect life. The life that all of us should have lived but didn't. He lived it. Then he died in our place as our substitute, our sacrifice. He rose from the grave to an indestructible life. The gospel announces that Jesus, the God, man, savior, king, now offers forgiveness of sin, eternal life, membership in his family, and he offers himself to any and all who will repent of their sin and put their full trust in his sacrifice to make them right with God. That is the good news. Paul wrote, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe it. Romans 1 16. It's the good news. So listen, the gospel is a person. The good news is a person, Jesus, and it is his work for us, his saving work on our behalf. And when I speak of the work of Christ, I'm not talking about his carpentry business. Although he was good at that, I'm sure. But I'm talking about nine aspects of what he did to save people. Just so you have them. His descent from heaven to earth, his incarnation as a human being, his perfect law-keeping life, his empowered ministry. Think about that creating food, healing the blind, making the lame to walk again, walking on water, raising people from the dead, casting out demons, His empowered ministry at the core of course is his sacrificial substitutionary death on the cross, his victorious resurrection, then he ascended on high and sent his spirit to come and empower the church. We have the spirit now within us. His present intercession for his people as Abby was talking about earlier that he prays for us and his promised return as king over all. Listen, this is the message that must remain at the heart of New Life's ministry. It must, the person and work of Jesus. No other message can save people from judgment. And no other message can transform your life like this message. Paul declared once, I am resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's a focused message, isn't it? Yes, many different priorities and agendas can drive a church, but only one should. A variety of teachings and sermons can be given, but none of them dare trump this one. Not in this church. And now's where it gets even more interesting, because number four, the gospel is the third way. The good news is the third way, and maybe you're thinking, what? What do you mean? The scriptures consistently reveal, bless you, two common paths Two paths that we humans take to try and have meaning in our lives and purpose and significance and happiness and freedom and acceptance and approval, all those things that we all crave in this life. Two ways to try and live a heavenly life and avoid a hellish existence. In other words, these are two ways that people think will lead them to salvation, whatever that means in their mind. One is the way of religious legalism, and the other is the path of rebellious license. And I want to talk about those for a moment. I want you to think about religious legalism for a moment. We could call that keeping the rules. Just keeping the rules. This path is the path of moral conformity, of compliance with God's law, of self-righteousness. You know what I'm talking about. Behaving well, doing the right thing, practicing morality. The way of religious legalism is all about attempting to gain God's favor through human effort, through human performance. The motto is this, I try to do the right things in order to be accepted and respected by God and by other people. That's religious legalism. Now listen, this is the way of the older brother I'm talking about Jesus' parable of the two lost sons. Remember there were two sons? There was the prodigal and then there was that older brother. This is the way of the older brother. The one who felt like, hey dad, I've always been the good kid around here. Where's my party? He felt like he deserved better treatment from his father than what he was getting, didn't he? This is the way of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, here's the law of Moses, and he said, kept all those commandments, what else you got? He felt entitled to eternal life because of his good life. This was the way of the poster children for religious legalism, the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees? Who sought the approval of God and the praise of men through their rigorous attempts to keep God's law? These are the religious rule keepers and people on this path are often graceless and usually they're very image conscious. They tend to be proud and they're always comparing themselves with other people. If you know someone who's always comparing himself or herself with others and comparing themselves favorably, like I'm more awesome than you, then you know you're talking to someone who's on this path. They're often very judgmental, looking down at others who don't meet up to their standard. They feel superior to other people They tend to believe that God owes them a happy life because of how good they've been. And when life doesn't turn out the way they think it should, they can often become bitter at God and disenchanted with him. Some on this path are led to despair because they come to a point where they realize they just can't pull it off and they're tired of having to be good all the time. It's wearing them out. Religious legalism, let me ask, is religious rule keeping the path to salvation? Not according to Jesus. This will not take you to that place of acceptance and joy and approval and freedom and significance. Rather, according to Christ, this is the broad road. This is the broad road of performance-based religion and it leads to hell. It leads to destruction. Even so, it's very, very popular. There are billions of people on this planet who are devoted to this path, who are on this path. If you perform, then you will be accepted. That's one path. There's a second path. Call this rebellion. Not religion, but rebellion. Not legalism, but license. Not keeping the rules, but breaking the rules. Not morality, but immorality. This is secularism. This is narcissism. This is irreligion. This is casting off all constraints. Heck with authority. I'm gonna behave however I want. I'm gonna do what makes me happy. This is the way of rebellion, and it's about seeking salvation through expressing personal autonomy and freedom. So the motto for these folks is I do whatever I want in order to feel free and be my own person. That's the philosophy of the rebel. This is not the way of the older brother in that parable of the two sons. This is the way of who? The prodigal, the younger kid. Hey dad, give me what's coming to me, I'm out of here. I'm heading to big city, bright lights, live it up there. This is the hedonistic way of the prodigal You know, rebellious rule breakers think they deserve a better life. They tend to seek freedom by indulging their appetites, crossing boundaries, using people, um, spurning authority, avoiding suffering at all costs, and ignoring the consequences of their choices. I mean, truthfully, their God is themselves. They ignore the true God. They esteem personal autonomy above everything else. This is the way of narcissistic irreligion. Does it lead to salvation? Not according to Jesus. Not true salvation. Some of you have been on this path, and so often this path leads to guilt and shame and emptiness and frustration. In the end, it leaves you with a mouth full of gravel. The freedom it promised is short-lived, phony, and you know what? It leaves you far from the Father. Just like the other path. But this path is also very popular. Billions of people on our planet are on this path. Now note this, this is interesting. You think, you know, religion and rebellion, legalism license, that they're, they appear to be opposites, but you know what? They're really very similar. Because they are both attempts at self-salvation. That's what they both are. The quest through our own human effort to feel good about ourselves and gain acceptance and approval of God and other people. Pharisees attempt to gain this through moral exertion and self-restraint. Prodigals attempt to gain it through expressing personal autonomy. But the Bible is clear that both legalism and license are doomed to fail. Both religion and rebellion, as belief systems and philosophies of life, overpromise and seriously underdeliver. And both paths lead people far away from a holy, loving God. As Tim Keller has noted, it surprises many people, and maybe you're among them, to discover in the Bible that there are actually two kinds of lostness, two ways to be far from God. And so, since both of these ways fail, we need a third way. We need a third way. Thankfully, there is a third way, and it is the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, the gospel tells us that all human beings are more sinful than we would ever dare to admit, and that we are all more deeply loved than we could ever dare imagine. And that's why it's good news The good news both humbles us and exalts us simultaneously at the same time. The gospel reveals that mankind is incapable, incapable of living up to God's holy standards. They're too high. They're too high, we can't clear God's bar and therefore we are condemned in our sin. Yet it also tells us that God loves us and chose to meet his own standards on our behalf while paying for our sins on an old rugged cross. In other words, as Saint Augustine said, in the gospel, God himself delivers what he demands. And that's good news. The result is that the gospel, listen, humbles the religious rule keeper by declaring he could never be good enough to earn God's favor. And it gives hope to the rule-breaking rebel by declaring he can never be bad enough to be outside the far reach of God's grace. That's good news. Listen to me, the call of the gospel is not behave. It's behold and believe. It's not do, do more, do better. It's done, it is finished call of the gospel is not try your best it's repent and trust in Jesus it's not you'd better perform or you won't be accepted it's Jesus performed perfectly for you and by trusting in him you are accepted big difference big difference now Does the gospel promote obedience and morally upright living? Of course it does. Of course it does. But it doesn't promote those things as a duty or an obligation in order to get God to like you more or in order to get something from God in return like in a a transaction. The gospel motivates obedience out of what? Gratefulness. Like yeah, I want to please this one who laid down his life for me. Why would I not? He's my delight. It causes morally upright behavior to flow from the new affections of a new heart that wants to please God. It's a beautiful thing. So can you see that the gospel succeeds where the other two ways fail? Can you see that it's the third way? That it's God's way, a better way, the only way? Jesus said, I am the way. Not, you know, one of several pretty decent options. (laughs) No, the way to God. And here's another startling truth, at least it was startling for me, number five, the gospel is for both non-Christians and Christians. Now, I've told you this before, I wasn't really taught to think this way, but I do now. I believe that both lost people and saved people need to regularly hear the truth of what God has done for us graciously in Christ. Certainly the gospel message is meant for unbelievers. Certainly it is meant for lost people. I mean it's the only message that can save them from their sins and from being judged for their sins. It's the only message they must believe and if you are an unbeliever here today, this is the message that you need to hear and respond to in faith and believe it. You know what, I'm also convinced that the gospel is meant to be heard by believers. You see, in his design, Christ uses hearing and believing the good news to produce the fruit of faith and hope and love in his people. Now, you're like me, you wanna be a person of of faith, right? You wanna be a person of of, of great love? You wanna have hope in your heart? Where does that come from? Does Does that come from a pastor standing up here and saying, have more faith? Have more hope. You people be more loving. No, it comes from hearing what God has done for you in Christ, letting that message sink down in your heart and take root. It's fruit. I've seen it. I've seen it in me. I've seen it in many, many of you. That's what Colossians 1 teaches us. You see, apart from regularly hearing and meditating on this good news, Christian living can just degenerate into proud, judgmental moralism or hopeless despair. But when we hear again what God in his love has done for us in Christ, it's like a 400 horsepower engine revving up inside of us. Can you hear it? That causes us to want to love our neighbors and obey the commands of Christ. John the Apostle said his commands are not burdensome because he delighted in the Lord. It's the engine that empowers our spiritual growth and desire, we hear it and we wanna please a God who would do that for us. So a New Life, here we seek to remind each other regularly and often of this good news and preach it to ourselves every day. You've heard these quotes before but I love saying them so I'm gonna give them to you again. Tim Keller said the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, the gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. You don't grow in your spiritual life beyond the gospel, you grow deeper into it. It's like an ocean that has a shallow end where little children can kick their toes in and splash around, and it's got a deep end. You can spend 50, 60, 70 years looking around in and seeing new things. Unfathomable depths. Unfathomable depths. C.J. Mahaney wrote, the gospel is not just one class among many that you'll attend during your life as a Christian. The gospel's the whole building that all the classes are offered in. Rightly approached, all the topics, all the topics you'll study and focus on as a believer will be offered to you within the walls of the glorious gospel. I love what Milton Vincent wrote, the gospel is for Christians too. Christians need to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do, and I believe it. I've seen its power to change people, to change me and to change you. So we need to hear it often, and that's why number six, the gospel must remain central. Not peripheral, not incidental, not an afterthought, central to our life at New Life Church. Paul wrote this to the Corinthian church. He said, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the the scriptures. That's the gospel and he said it's of first importance. Listen, nothing is more important than this good news. So nothing should be more important to the church than keeping this message central. By the way, what was Jesus' central message when he was here? Repent and believe the good news, Mark 1 15. What was the main message of his apostles who followed him? Will you read the book of Acts and you tell me if it was something other than Jesus Christ crucified for our sins and risen for our forgiveness and justification, that was it. That was their message. Think about it, Jesus Christ gave his church two ordinances to follow until he comes back. You know what they are? Baptism and the Lord's table. But what are those if they are not pictures, visual pictures of the good news? His body, broken and crushed for us, symbolized by the bread. His blood, shed for us, symbolized by the cup. A person stands in the baptistry and says, I am Christ's, I put my faith in him, he's my savior. I'm going under the water to symbolize his death, burial, and resurrection. Aren't you glad when we get him back up? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it'd be horrible, wouldn't it, to hold people down for like five bubbles, you know? <laughs> Come on, get him up. <laughs> it's a picture of the gospel. Jesus wanted his people being visually reminded of this over and over and over and over again. I know that Church slogans can be cheesy. (laughs) I've seen some really corny ones. But I hope the motto, Jesus front and center all the time, will actually become true of our life as a church. That we keep him central. Listen, it's not that we can't talk about other things, other important life issues, marriage, relationships, family, conflict, work, money. It's just that we seek to discover how those things are impacted by what happened on that hill 2,000 years ago because we're convinced that there is a connection. I am. You know, Paul said, for example, he said, um, flee fornication, which means don't have sex with, with someone who's not your spouse. Next phrase because you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Purchased by the blood of Christ. And when you have eyes to see it, when you have those lenses on, you'll see it all throughout the scriptures. Everything, everything, everything connects to that cross and that empty tomb. Somehow, I don't have it all figured out yet, but I'm enjoying the journey of discovering how how I handle my finances, how I parent my kids, how I conduct my work life, it all connects to cross and the empty tomb. And so for me and for us, I believe in that old axiom, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Amidst all the competing voices in the world and in the church, we must work to keep the gospel at the center. This year is the 500th anniversary, some of you know this, of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, if you don't know what that was, it was a, a season of upheaval over in Europe where Martin Luther and, and others like him were trying to call the church back to its roots, back to fidelity to the Word of God, back to faithfulness to the gospel. I've been reading a book lately about the councils, creeds, and confessions of the church down through the centuries. And one of the most beloved confessions came out of that reformation era. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. And it was written in kind of a Q&A type format because it was designed to help young people understand their faith. And understand the main tenets of Christianity in hopes that they would be devoted to the gospel for the remainder of their lives. It was uh, adopted in 1563 and here's how it starts. Question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own but belong with body and soul both in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Question two, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer, first I need to know how great my sins and my misery are. Second, I need to know how I am delivered from all my sins and misery by Jesus. And third, I need to know how I am to be thankful to God for such deliverance. You've heard of John Newton. He was a renowned English slave owner in the 18th 18th century. Who ended up converting to Christianity. He became a follower of Jesus and you know him because he penned the words to the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. At age 82, he was declining rapidly, his health was failing him, and uh, he said this to someone who came to visit him. He said, you know what, my memory is nearly gone, but I do remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. Man, if you remember something, remember that, right? I mean, as you get older, you might forget your wife's birthday, God forbid, You might forget your own social security number, but remember that you are a great sinner and Jesus is a great savior. That's the good news. And it is so good. But listen, I could talk till I'm hoarse, and I almost am, about how the gospel needs to be central to the life of the church, but you know what? For that to become a reality, it's gotta become central in my heart and life and in your heart and life, for what is the church if it's not the people? The walls are not gonna become gospel-centered. The carpet's not, bricks and mortar won't, it's you and I, you and I. Loving, treasuring Jesus and his saving work more than anything else. We all know there's a lot of things to get excited about in this world, right? A lot of things to capture our affection and our attention and our hearts. But wouldn't it be a great tragedy if you went through your entire life and never let your heart be captivated by the main thing? I mean, wouldn't it be tragic if at your death and your appearance before Jesus Christ with the nail prints in his hands, the scar in his side, the nail prints in his feet and he stands before you and says, "Now." Bill, Mary, you, you got excited about a lot of things down there, you know? you know, like that guy who put that little ball in that metal cylinder, that was, yeah, that's awesome. But you never really got thrilled by what I did for you. I mean, I laid down my life for you so that you could be with me. You never let your heart get captivated by that. Wouldn't that be tragic? What place does the message of Jesus crucified for your sins and risen from the dead for your justification, what place does that have in your heart? Pastor Steve, the truth is I've allowed a lot of other things to crowd out the main thing from the center of my heart. And I need to repent of that. And that's what I wanna pray for all of us for right now. So would you bow your heads with me? Father, I suspect this is true of many of us, it's too true of me. I think of the words of that old hymn, all that thrills my soul is Jesus. Lord, so often something looks so promising and we dive into it and it leaves us empty. And I think it's because you loved us enough to create us with a God-shaped void in our hearts that only you can fill. And I pray for my brothers and sisters right now in this room, Lord. Would I pray that this good news would be rehearsed over and over and over again in their minds. They would dive deep into that ocean and see things about it they've never seen before and be fascinated and worship you once again. And um, Lord, I pray for any in the room who don't know Jesus Christ. I pray in a moment they would, they would um, come and talk to a prayer partner and just say, I, I need to understand how to become a Christian, how to know Jesus. Lord, I pray that would happen. And so now, Lord, receive our worship as we come before you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming from heaven to earth, living and dying for us, that we might live with you forever. Help us to keep the main thing as the main thing in our own hearts and lives. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Visit us each week as we continue to journey through God's word and seek to know him better through the gospel. Our prayer is that the gospel has taken a deeper hold of you as we have studied the word together at New Life Church, where Jesus is front and center all the time.